Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Yonda Winter, an independent scholar based in Ghent. His new book, Interests and Epistemic Integrity in Science, is just out from Roman and Littlefield. In the 1960s, Thomas Kuhn argued in The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that scientists' choices between competing theories could not be determined by the empirical evidence. Ever since, philosophers of science have debated the role of non-epistemic values and interests in science, generally agreeing that such influences are undesirable even if they are inevitable. In his new book, Yonda Winter argues that the direct influence of non-epistemic interests in science is not invariably epistemically problematic. In his view, what is mistaken for an epistemic problem is often a lack of transparency regarding the interests involved in how a scientific decision has been reached. De Winter also defends a conception of epistemic integrity in the conduct of scientific research that does not presuppose a distinction between interests that are external to science, such as financial interests, and those which are internal to it. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, Jan de Winter. Uh, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Uh, hello. Um, thank you for agreeing to talk with, uh, with us about your new book, Interests and Epistemic Integrity in Science. Um, before we get to the book... Um, uh, can we hear a little bit about yourself? I mean, you are an independent scholar, um, yes. which is, um, you know, atypical in the sense that most people doing research are usually affiliated with a, you know, in some university positions. So, um, can you say a bit about, you know, your background as a philosopher and, um, you know, how you're, how you're doing as far as an independent scholar goes and, um, and how you came to write this particular book? Um, yes, yeah, so I currently work as an ethics teacher, um, so my pupils are between 12 and 18 years old, and I teach ethics. Um, now, I, I also got a PhD in philosophy, in, in the field of philosophy of science, so I worked a couple of years at Kent University uh, for the Center for Logic and Philosophy of Science, and uh, the book is basically a result of that research uh, that I did at the Center for Logic and Philosophy of Science. Um, now, after my uh, grant ended, I still continue doing research, and uh, even now I, I work uh, like in, in vacations. I still uh, write a paper, and a couple of weeks ago I went to the World Conference on Research Integrity. So I still try to do um, well. I, I still try to stay connected to the philosophical world, actually. Um, 
Now the two, so teaching and doing research combine very well because the things that I learn in my research can also be used in my teaching. So that's really a nice fit, actually. Um, now, I also want to say something about how, how I became interested in philosophy, if that's okay. Sure, sure. Um, because, well, I kind of expected this question, and so I started thinking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this shed a whole new light on the book, actually. When I started going back in my history, uh, I regarded my own book in a new light, and so I thought maybe it would be interesting to talk about this. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I became interested in philosophy when I was uh, like 16 or 17 years old. Um, currently, I'm 31, so that's, that's like a long time ago. Um, so I was in at, at that time, I was interested in animal ethics um, because I was working at this animal shelter. And, well, I, I started thinking about the way animals are treated in the uh, food industry and also in pharmaceutical experiments. Mm-hmm. And I became interested in that, and so I wanted to study moral sciences, which is a study where you have a lot of ethics, but also a lot of philosophy. And um, really, the, the thinking about animal ethics was also, or, or it was always connected to an interest in philosophy of science as well, because at the animal shelter, there was a guy who treated animals in a very um, different way. So he, he had read a lot about dogs, and so he treated these dogs very differently from other people. He behaved very differently around these dogs. And so as a result, the dogs responded very differently, and, and it's like um, some dogs barked a lot at, at all people, but when he was around, they stopped barking and they followed him around. And so I saw that these animals were behaving very differently, and... Well, I thought it's because he had a different understanding of these animals that he treated them differently. And so the question, how should we treat animals, was to me linked to how should we look at animals. And um, and that became, so that was my first uh, interest. But then these questions became more general. Um, The question, how should we treat others, which is an ethical question, was linked to how should we look at others, how should we look at the world. And... um, at that time, I thought that science was a, you, the best way to look at the world. It was, in my view, kind of an objective way to look at the world. And I, so I became interested in the scientific way of looking at the world. And that's how I turned to uh, philosophy of science, actually. Um, yeah, and that, now that's relevant for my book because the last chapter is on animals. And so if you read the book, I think if you read the book, then... You probably saw this last chapter as some additional chapter, which wasn't really um, the essence of the book. But as I look back at my own history, then maybe, well, I, you could actually also read the book as a eight chapters of introduction to the ninth chapter, which is really important in my view. Interesting. Um, well, I, I do want to get to, to that because you talked there about uh, uh, Franz de Waal and his, uh, yeah. his, 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 his research in, in animal ethics. Um, well, let's, let's um, you know, sort of start at the, at the beginning with the larger question. Um, so the general – so you're, you're talking about interests in epistemic integrity. Um, yes. And uh, the general goal of the book is to talk about the different types and roles of interests in science. I mean, it's a, there's a, it's a kind of a familiar general theme that, you know, science is, is you know, has interests um, and interests affect science. Um, but it's often not 
uh, you know, people don't often go beyond that. And so what attracted me to the book was the idea that you were going to focus, what are these interests? What are the different types of interests? Which are the acceptable ones? Which are the unacceptable ones? How these relate to the issue of values and values in science? Um, and, you know, sort of look at a more, in a more detailed way at the role of interests and to some extent values in science. So you, you start out, you kind of lay out a general conceptual groundwork, uh, for the rest of the discussion in terms of you know, saying what are interests versus what are values or, or goals as a subset of interests, um, and then what are epistemic interests versus non-epistemic interests, and then various concepts of influence, right, how in- interests of various types can have various types of influence in science. So could you explain uh, these basic distinctions that you draw and, and give some examples of each of them? Um, yes. So first of all, I start by um, explaining what I mean by interests. And so I see interests as a relation between a, an agent and um, a state or a, a potential state or a potential circumstance, which is um, somewhere in the future. And now the relation is basically that the uh, state or the circumstance is regarded by the agent as beneficial. So it thinks that it would be a good thing if the state would be realized uh, in the future. So, for instance, if you think of um, a health interest, then you have a certain uh, health state. So, for instance, you are sick and uh, a situation in which you no longer have a certain disease is uh, a potential state state in the future which you regard as beneficial. So, that's an example of a health interest. If you... um, Another example is if you want to have a billion dollars in the future, then this, this state in which you have a billion dollars is a, an interest because that's a state in the future which is regarded as beneficial. Uh, so that's a, um, an example of a financial interest. Um, now, a second concept which I clarify is a value because, well, there has been written a lot about values uh, by philosophers, but less about interests. So I had to clarify a bit the uh, link between the literature on values, which I used, and on the other hand, um, the topic that I wanted to write about, uh, interest in science. And so I regarded a value as a property which is regarded as beneficial for an entity of a certain kind. So a certain property is viewed as a, as a, a value for a certain kind of entity if we regard this property as beneficial for an entity of that kind. Uh, an example I give in the book is uh, the, the property of speed for race cars. So this is a, a race car can be fast or slow. And um, this is regarded as a value because we want race cars to be fast. So um, here you also have a relation between an agent and um, a property in this case, because uh, you still have an agent who uh, values this, but uh, speed is really a property and not yeah, it's not characterized as a relation. Now, the two are closely connected interests and values because, for instance, if you uh, say speed is a value for a race car, then this can lead to the interest of having a fast race car or the interest of tuning your car into a fast race car and so on. So the two are closely connected and that's why the relevance, uh, the literature on values is very relevant for my uh, book. 
Um, now, I also make a distinction between different kinds of interests. So we have epistemic interests and non-epistemic interests. Uh, an epistemic interest is regarded as a desire to know something. So, for instance, you want to know uh, why a certain event happens. Uh, that's an explanatory interest. So that's an epistemic interest because you want to know something. Another example is if you have a certain hypothesis and you want to have evidence which support this hypothesis, that's also a kind of an epistemic interest. Uh, now, all other interests are non-epistemic. Uh, now, maybe I should say something. There has been a lot of uh, controversy about the distinction between epistemic and non-epistemic values. Um, but, well, there has been a criticism on this distinction, but these criticisms do not apply to my distinction because um, I don't assume that epistemic interests are separated from non-epistemic interests. Uh, they are often very closely connected. Um, for instance, if, if a pharmaceutical company wants to have evidence that a drug is safe um, because it believes that such evidence will help the company sell uh, the product, which serves its financial interests, and you have a case in which... Uh, an epistemic interest in evidence is linked to financial interests. So um, the two can be closely related, and I don't say that they are always separated. So that's an important um, mm -hmm. aspect of my of this distinction. Okay. Um, so let me let me just uh, you know a lot of people who people who are familiar with philosophy of science, uh, you know, for at least. Um, many people trained in the analytic tradition will associate the idea of values in science, you know, from the first, you know, first mention of that with, with Thomas Kuhn and, and the structure of scientific revolution sort of put that idea, you know, in the forefront of, you know, at least part of philosophy of science. And, and there the idea, you know, was that, I mean, you know, a number of people that you, that you mentioned, you know, Helen Longineau and, and, uh, Heather Douglas and other people, you know, have, have continued some of that. But, um, the basic idea was that in some sense, science, there are, there are values. I mean, I know I'm getting into values here rather than interests, and you just drew that distinction. But, um, uh, the whole idea that, you know, something, uh, is problematic. Uh, when non-epistemic, you know, values or interests or both. Uh, gets involved in science, and and Kuhn was was famously like roundly criticized for saying that theory choice, and that's one of the cases that you give, that theory choice is not just determined by the empirical facts, and you know people, and instead it was you know the caricature was that you know he was arguing that it was a matter of you know mob psychology as as they put it which which he didn't like you know he he argued against that but still um could you could you sort of give us um an overview of you know why you know what the what the problem is with with values or with interests um and non-epistemic interests i guess in particular uh, in, in in science, um, yes. Yeah, so there are, there are some cases known in which, um, well, financial interest, for instance, but also you also have examples of political interest playing in science, and then you clearly have a sense that there is something wrong with these interests influencing science. Um, 
for instance, yeah, I already said, suppose a pharmaceutical company wants to um, accept that a drug is safe and it collects evidence, but then it manipulates the evidence because it sees that actually a drug is not safe and they want to have, they want to end up with a safe drug because um, if they can make people believe that the drug is safe, then they can sell their uh, this drug. Now, if they start manipulating data because this serves their interest, then you see there is a problem. Um, well, you have the sense that there is something wrong. And usually, um, or traditionally, people say, yeah, that's because financial interests have no place in science. Um, and that explains why there is a problem. Now, for instance, Thomas Kuhn, um, his research showed that this view was a bit too simplistic. And that's basically the idea that I wanted to build on. Now, um, Today, philosophers of science accept um, certain parts of the work of Thomas Kuhn and, and a lot of other philosophers think that values play an important role in science, but they still think that um, accepting a hypothesis um, on the basis of interest, that is still problematic. And so they say in that phase of research, um, interest should not play a role. And that's um, something which I was questioning. Right. No, that was one of the important points I thought you made. Um, in the book was that we shouldn't it's it's not a sort of a blanket problem it it, it there are certain uh, certain ways in which that influence is not negative um, but um, uh, well I mean just to to go you you draw a distinction um, between the sort of ideal the what do you call the full ideal of purity of science um, and as you just indicated, you know, more recent philosophers of science have, you know, kind of take, you know, stepped away from that, you know, basic ideal of science. But then there's still what you call the partial ideal of purity. And a lot of people think that, you know, that's still, uh, you know, an ideal that we should hold. So could you, to explain the difference between the, the full ideal of purity um, and then the partial idea of purity and, you know, what's, why, why you think, I mean, this is sort of a crucial, you know, uh, argument that you make in the book, why the partial ideal of purity should be abandoned just like the full ideal of purity. Um, yeah, so first I'll uh, explain the partial ideal of purity. So, um, basically, the idea is that um, in decisions such as hypothesis, acceptance, or theory choice, um, interest should not have a direct influence. So, well, Kuhn showed that they kind of had an influence through values because uh, scientists um, accept certain values, and these values can play in uh, deciding which theory to choose. Now, um, Kuhn also said that which values you choose can be influenced by the personal preferences of the scientist. And so you can say here the personal interests of the scientist can affect which values he chooses. And so that's a kind of an indirect influence on theory choice. Now, if you say, okay, there are a lot of ways in which uh, values play, even in theory choice, but this influence is also always indirect, then this is the partial ideal of purity, uh, which is that's a direct influence of interest on decisions such as hypothesis acceptance um, is never uh, acceptable. 
And what do I mean by a direct influence is that um, an interest is used as a standalone reason to accept this hypothesis. Or if you take theory choice, if an interest is used as a standalone reason to choose one theory over others, then this is a direct influence. Um, so, um, well, if a pharmaceutical company says this drug is safe, why? Because this serves our interest, that is a problem. Um, according to the partial ideal of purity. Um, now, I was thinking about this and I thought that there were cases in which you have an hypothesis. Um, well, I focused on explanatory hypothesis and in which you say, I accept this explanatory hypothesis because it serves my interest and this is not necessarily a problem. So that's basically the point I want to make in the book. Okay, well, let, let, let me... Um, I mean, one of the big issues um i mean there's also there's you know drug testing and or or research and things like that but also the whole idea of of you know climate change i mean particularly in the in the united states uh you know the the denial of climate or or denial of the human uh human causes of you know of global warming um so you know, here you're not talking about the interests of scientists, you know, sort of influencing how they do science, you know, what theories they accept, what explanations they accept, and so forth. Um, but you're, but it's, it's, a, it's a nearby problem in the sense of certain people, you know, outside of science, their interests affecting, you know, again, what happens with scientific hypotheses. Um, how, can you, can, how, how do you see that sort of, uh, of sort of relationship between, I guess, the, um, you know, public, maybe I should put it, public interests and which sciences, which science, you know, how science is, uh, accepted or rejected, you know, outside of science itself. Yes, but I think, so you make a distinction between science on the one hand, and there you have scientists, um, and on the other hand, the outside of science, where there are politicians and so on, and the public. Mm -hmm. um, now, I don't think that that distinction can really be made, because scientists also are just people, and they also have interests and political ideas, political goals. And so I think even in science, these interests play an important uh, role. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so, for example, with, with global warming, you do, do uh, how, might, how might those interests be played out in terms of the science itself? Um, yes. So, if, for instance, if you see at the work of the IPCC, so I, I regard this as, as a scientific organization mm -hmm. um, because a lot of scientists are involved, but you also see that governments of different countries are involved in the process um, because they, yeah, they review um, the reports of the uh, IPCC. And so, well, all of these uh, countries, the interests of all of these countries are part of the making of the IPCC reports, so they are really, um, in the scientific process, these interests play a role, so I don't really 
you, know, you don't draw the distinction that I just that I just did. No. Okay. I think that yeah, scientists and outsiders, mm-hmm. uh, non-scientists are all involved in this process because well, the non-scientists may not do the research, but they still influence these researchers, and these researchers are connected to these people, also have similar interests, and I think that these interests um, play in the scientific process. Um, when scientists have a hypothesis, they think about how should I formulate this hypothesis, and in deciding whether to accept certain formulations of a hypothesis or of certain conclusions. And in thinking about this question, they take all of these interests into account, their own interests, also interests of others. And I think this is actually a good thing that they do this. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let me, let me go back to the, the partial purity, because you, you spend an, a, a bit of time on that, um, the partial ideal of purity, I should say. Um, uh, and and you go through uh, various you, you your argument sort of turns on a particular issue of of um, explanation right certain explanations yeah. being acceptable or not acceptable uh, for certain you know because of certain interests that may be non epistemic or just or not or yeah non epistemic or epistemic um, could you could you sort of go through that a bit about, you know, the, the more of your argument against uh, the par- even the partial ideal of purity? Um, yes, yeah. So, well, I, I started thinking that the partial ideal of purity was problematic when I was, so I was writing a paper on uh, mechanistic artifacts explanation in which one um, explains an artifact's behavior by describing the underlying mechanism and well, I was writing a philosophical paper on this topic, and so I developed uh, a very simple artifact, and I described the mechanism uh, underlying the behavior of the artifact, um, and then I published this paper, and then after a while I discovered that the my explanation was not entirely correct. Um, so if you would actually make the artifact that I described, it would not exactly work as... I described it because there were some details which were not correct. Uh-huh. Now, I was thinking, should I um, adjust this explanation so that it, it becomes fully accurate? And then I thought about my own interests, the, the ideas that I want to make clear. And I thought if I would um, drop all of these inaccuracies, um, then my explanation would become very complex. The reader would have to make a lot of ed- effort in understanding this explanation. And so... I thought maybe I should just leave these inaccuracies in my explanation um, because, well, the explanation in its current form um, serves my philosophical interests, and so there's no problem. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I was thinking scientists, maybe they are often in similar situations because um, they too make a lot of idealizations on the basis of their interests. So sometimes they simplify certain things because uh, simple explanations are easier to work with. And that was basically um, my motivation for um, criticizing the partial ideal of purity, because that states that you should not um, accept an explanation on the basis of your interests, while I saw even even your interests can overrule accuracy. So mm-hmm. if you think of science as something where, as a process in which you only use the criterion of uh, empirical accuracy, mm-hmm. 
then this uh, is a problem. If you see in scientific practice that scientists don't just look at accuracy, but they too use idealizations and look at their interests in order to accept certain inaccuracies. And so that's basically my criticism of the partial ideal of purity. Okay. So, so let me just, so if, if, you know, some, someone might, might respond to that, that what you said is, is true, you know, we might accept a an inaccurate or highly idealized uh, or sketchy explanation. Uh, you know, even scientists will, will do this for, for certain reasons, certain contexts and what have you. And it seems like, you know, somebody might might respond to you saying that, that can be true, uh, but, you know, when the scientists are sort of really doing science um, as opposed to, say, pedagogy or, you know, s- you know some other interest, right? Um, uh, that's when there may be differences in certainly in levels of abstraction, uh, you know, in terms of a, uh, you know, what sort of a mechanistic explanation is acceptable. So there can be different... Different acceptable explanations within science, you know, um, uh, you know, even say within the mechanistic explanatory framework, but for the purposes of, you know, of science, all of those are going to be, you know, sort of driven by, uh, by epistemic interest. You know, we, we want to get it right. Maybe we don't want to get, we, maybe we don't need all the details. Here, you know, maybe just these ones matter in this context and so forth. But as far as the science goes, our interests are still, you know, epistemic. And I would never, like, go for another uh, explanation driven by something non-epistemic. I mean, how would you respond to that person? Yeah, so I would say accuracy is an important uh, value in science, but also, well, even the value of accuracy can be linked to interest because you want um, certain hypotheses which are accurate because this accuracy is important for your interests to be served. Now, but you also, so it's not just accuracy that you want, but you also take these interests into account. So you have many things that you have to take into account in deciding whether or not to accept the hypothesis. Um, you should look at the evidence, but you should also constantly think about what is it I, I'm willing to do with this hypothesis? Um, what will it be used for? And so you always have to take uh, your interest into account. Also, if you decide whether or not to accept the hypothesis, you can think, if I use this formulation and I accept it and I publish this, what will the consequences be? Will there be so- certain social interests which will be damaged? And these kind of things have to play in your decision whether or not to accept the hypothesis. And it's not just uh, the evidence. So you want your explanation to be accurate because, well, that's important for your interests to be served, but other inaccuracies can be accepted if uh, these inaccuracies do not damage your interests. So, mm-hmm. to me, there's really no problem of these non-epistemic interests um, playing in itself. So, if you had a biologist, I mean, one of the cases you talk about is is in biology. Uh, if you if you have you know somebody who is a a 
you know, fundamentalist Christian or something, um, you know, very devout, um, who is also a biologist and they choose, they, so they, they, uh, I don't know, reject, you know, evolution or they only accept it in certain very constrained circumstances. Um, and the reason that they do that is because, um, you know, they have this belief system which says, you know, uh, you know, evolution in some sense contradicts that. Um, so on your view, would, would that, would the scientist, the biologist say, who, who rejects evolution for, you know, because it, you know, because as he or she sees it, it conflicts with their religious convictions, uh, or, you know, with their place in a religious you know, community, would that, um, would that scientist somehow be doing something, uh, wrong or is that just a case where, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to do that? Um, yeah. So to me, well, this is a difficult question because I think I could have certain ethical problems with what he's doing on the basis of my own beliefs and, well, I can use certain ethical theories to decide whether or not um, what he is doing is wrong. If I believe that what he is doing will have certain um, negative effects on uh, certain people, then this can be an argument to believe that what he is doing is, is uh, morally wrong. But if you if I just look at the epistemic, um, well, at epistemic integrity, which is uh, an ideal that I use in my book um, to see whether there is an epistemic problem, then I'd say that if the biologist is very clear and open about what he is doing, then there is not necessarily an, an epistemic problem in in uh, this. But there could be a moral problem. So that's an important um, distinction. Hmm. I mean, if I say that something is not epistemically problematic, I, I don't mean that he's not doing anything wrong. But uh, epistemically, there is no problem, I think. So, huh? So, well, if there, if certain conditions are met, I mean, right? The the person has to be very clear about what he's doing, and um, well, yeah, it should be clear to the audience what he's doing, and um, there should not be some um, ambiguities about that. So, well, let's let, let's you know get to the this idea of of epistemic uh, integrity. Which you know, that's where you focus the second part of the book. Because I'm, I, I want to get more of that on the table before we sort of discuss the biologist, the religious biologist, further. Um, yes. So you you draw distinctions again between moral versus epistem- epistemological concepts, and then you know agents, you know scientists, so forth, and then uh, their behavior, you know, the research processes themselves. So this is the framework that you develop in order to go on to defend your own uh, definition of of uh, the epistemic integrity of a research pro- uh, process. So uh, could you could you you know lay the framework a bit of you know how you talk about epistemic integrity? Yes. So um, epistemic integrity is a Well, so I say you have different kinds of scientific integrity. Um, On the one hand, you have epistemological concepts of scientific integrity. On the other hand, you have ethical concepts of scientific integrity. 
Um, now the epistemological concepts they um, they relate to the good in light of um, epistemic considerations. So that means that um, what is the question there is what is good in light of the goal of science to produce uh, reliable knowledge. Um, and so epistemological concepts focus on that kind of integrity. Now you could also have other considerations, for instance, uh, social considerations, economic considerations. Um, all of these considerations are taken into account when you assess a scientific process. Um, and when you assess all of those uh, aspects of the research process, then you are talking about moral integrity. So et ethical concepts focus on the good in general, the good in light of social, economic, epistemological considerations, um, while epistemological concepts focus on the good in light of the epistemic goals of science, the goal to produce reliable knowledge. And yeah, I also make a distinction between um, integrity of agents on the one hand and integrity of behavior on the other hand. Now, the two can be linked to each other. So for instance, if you um, you could say that an agent should be assessed on the basis of his, uh, of his behavior and then uh, integrity of an agent is linked to uh, integrity of the research process. But I... In the book, I only focus on uh, integrity of the research process and I only focus on epistemic integrity of the research process. So I want to talk about what is good in light of the goal to produce reliable knowledge um, for a research process. So, uh, so, so let me, let me just, you know, kind of illustrate that or follow that up with the, you know, again, with the, um, the religious uh, biologist. So, uh, on your view, and, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Um, on your view, um, if he chooses, say, you know, to reject the theory of evolution because of his, say, interests in maintaining his his religious convictions, right? Let's just yeah. um, there's there's on your view. I, I take it there's there's nothing sort of problematic. Problem, problematic about that, right? Is that is that uh, correct? Or yeah, it depends on how we how we presents this because often, okay. yeah, often. Uh, well, this this biologist he probably wants to make a lot of people believe that what he's saying is true, and so he may uh, want to deceive his audience in order to make them believe what he's saying, and then he, there is a problem. But if he's just clear, I just believe this hypothesis because it serves my personal interests, then that is not an epistemic problem in, in my view. Uh -huh. Now, I, I, maybe I should also say why I um, would say that that is not an epistemic problem, because yeah. a lot of people would think this is strange. Yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, the reason is that there are very, uh, well, there are a lot of differences of opinion on what standards are needed to uh, produce reliable knowledge. And I wanted to have an account of epistemic integrity, which can be accepted by everyone, regardless of your um, beliefs on what kind of research would deliver reliable knowledge. And so I wanted to have a definition. If I can show that um, epistemic integrity is damaged, then this, is, this conclusion is acceptable to people holding different beliefs on what kind of standards are um, needed to arrive at knowledge that you can trust. So that's basically the reason why I have a very uh, liberal definition of epistemic integrity. 
But again, it's not because I, I'd say that epistemic integrity is not damaged in certain cases that I, I say that this is morally no problem. I mean, morally, it can still be a problem, but epistemically, it is not. If the scientist is clear about what he's doing, why he accepts a certain hypothesis and so on. So, so uh, yeah, so, so as long as the biologist... You know, says I, I'm, I'm a biologist. I see this evidence, but I reject the evolutionary hypothesis because it conflicts with my religious views. That would not be an epistemic failure on his part. Uh, no. Now, there's also a question: Is this really science? What he is doing? I mean, you could still argue that what he's doing is not science, and I could also say that I do not uh, consider this reliable knowledge, but um, he's still producing a kind of uh, information which I don't view as reliable knowledge, but he uh, does think that it is reliable knowledge. And um, this means that there is no epistemic problem in, in my view. Huh. Okay, so so to go to the epistemic integrity of a research process, which is what we were mentioning before, to, to go back to that. So if this yes. biologist um, is doing his research... Yeah, I wouldn't even call it research, probably, but... Uh -huh. Okay. Oh, well, I mean, uh, why, why not? Actually, let me let me just press you on that. Why 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 would I mean if he's in a lab and he's doing various or you know however he would want to be testing these things? I mean, you know, I guess the issue that starts to get raised is you know when people start you know not not I don't mean just to get into sort of misconduct of their research, right? You know, cases of fraud and things like that. But if he's if he's doing research that allows him to sort of come up with conclusions that that seem to support what he, you know, his 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 religious beliefs, or at least not not conflict with them. But he's not doing anything wrong with the science. Is that is that you know? Then he's he's you know that that would that would fall within your view as a perfectly you know epistemically valid way. You know, epistemically in, in that would he would be working within the confines of 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 acting with epistemic integrity is or not. I mean, what? Yeah, yeah. So. I think that is correct. I mean, if he if he does that, mm -hmm. um, then he could do that with it, epistemic integrity. But it's very tricky because if he just wants to do, if he wants to find evidence which supports his ideas, uh -huh. then um, well, the, this will only work if he is um, if he doesn't admit his true uh, motivation because if, if people know his true motivation they can think oh yeah but he just did that and that so it's not really um, reliable or I don't trust this guy and so often these scientists um, keep certain things secret in order to get other people to believe them and that's when the problem arises in my view okay. so but if he's open and clear then there, then there is no epistemic problem in my view hmm. Usually the strategy only works if you aren't open and clear about what you're doing. Okay. So. Yeah, so there's a sort of a public 
criteria or publicity criterion about uh, in, in in one's in being epistemic uh, in satisfying epistemic integrity. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So well, let's. So you you go through. I mean, to to continue with epistemic integrity, you, you there's a there's you go through a number of different definitions of that. We don't need to go through all of them, but you. Uh, uh, you end up with with your own, um, which yes. um, maybe that's where we should. Um, maybe you can tell us, you know, what one of the main ones that you find uh, flawed, and then your own definition and how it avoids the flaws. Okay, so um, well, I, I studied, I, I read a lot of definitions on on integrity. Now. One of the most common is the idea that uh, integrity is linked to honesty. So you have different ways of putting that. But uh, often honesty is an important um, value which is linked to a definition of integrity. Now, the problem that I have with honesty, with focusing on honesty, is that honesty requires that there is no intention to deceive. And if you don't intend to deceive, even though you may deceive, but unintentionally, then there's no dishonesty. And it, that was a bit of a problem to me because, well, sometimes scientists are sloppy and sometimes they are sloppy whenever being sloppy is useful for their interests. Uh-huh. And I wanted to have an account of integrity, which can also explain why uh, this kind of sloppiness is um, epistemically problematic. Should I give an example of Yeah, this? Yeah, that'd be helpful. Yeah, so... Something that some pharmaceutical companies do is they, um, well, they they have developed a certain drug and they want to show that this is um, more effective than alternative drugs. And so they they compare their own drug to inadequate doses of another drug. Mm. And and so their drug comes out as more effective. Um, Now, if they do that intentionally, then they are being dishonest. but it's also possible that they just didn't um, carefully consider what doses of the other drug would be most uh, effective. Mm-hmm. And they, they may not look into the literature on that, but just take one study. And then they, they don't believe that they are wrong about the doses of the other drug because maybe they found one publication, but they didn't um, decently investigate that. Um, so they are not intentionally being dishonest, but they are being sloppy in a way that is um, beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. And well, in that case, I, there there is no dishonesty. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to say there is an integrity problem, and therefore definitions which only focus on honesty um, are not very helpful in my view. So then I, I turn to other definitions focus on existing standards. So they say uh, you have certain professional organizations and they um, determine certain uh, standards that researchers uh, respect. And then uh, integrity is um, adhering to these uh, established standards. Um, now, a problem that I had with this uh, view was, um, so I had a thought experiment. Suppose that you have a corrupt organization and it's, sets so again to use the example of pharmaceutical science um you have a certain pharmaceutical organization and they say in order to show that a drug is unsafe you need to have um a lot of evidence and they put the standard so high that actually it's almost impossible to show that a a drug is unsafe if there is then a scientist who gets some evidence that a drug can kill a lot of people then he may see okay 
I believe that this drug is unsafe, but it does. This evidence doesn't really. Um, well, the evidence isn't sufficient according to the standards of the corrupt pharmaceutical organization. Um, now, in that case, if you use established standards as um, the basis of your definition of integrity, you would say that the scientist is wrong and that the, um, the standards of the uh, pharmaceutical organization are correct. And that is something I wanted to avoid because I think it's important that Scientists can also question established standards, and so I wanted a definition in which this is possible for scientists to um, deviate from existing standards uh, whenever this is uh, best given the interests at play. Okay. So, yeah, so I was, what I was going to raise before when you talked about sloppiness, um, uh, so I don't, uh, you don't really talk about like the, the replication, you know, reproducibility crisis in psychology or anything like that. Are you are you familiar with 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 those problems in psychology? Yeah, I, I'm not very familiar with these problems, but I know um, I know about them. So yeah, you, yeah, you can ask a question about. So. Yeah, so so I was just wondering. Um, so, so you know, one of the one of the problems. I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which, you know, some psychologists, or at least enough of them, um, uh, they don't, you know, they don't, you know, change their data in any way, you know, so there's no, none of none of the big sort of forms of misconduct going on. But, you know, there'll be some sort of, actually, there's, you know, more or less widely accepted sorts of ways of conducting studies where, you know, you sort of, you might stop collecting, you know, data or stop running subjects when you have a result that turns out to be statistically significant, you know, so you just stop even if you were planning or alternatively you, you keep testing until you find some level at which there is a, some result that is statistically significant. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of, you know, sort of little things that people will do to get a result that is publishable. Yes, and, yeah. none, and none of these things, you know, uh, sometimes people say, you know, it's, the, it, you know, it's just kind of, it's a little bit sloppy. It's not that people are intentionally deceiving, like with a case of outright fraud, you know, it's clearly that there is interest there in, in getting published. So there are, you know, it's professional interests, right? Career interests. But everybody's got the career interests going. Is what they're doing, does that, would that satisfy or, or would that be ruled out by your definition of, you know, epistemic integrity of the research process? Well, in theory, it doesn't. Um it is not necessarily epistemically problematic, but I think in practice it often is because if a psychologist um, wants to have impressive results, then he, he probably shouldn't admit that he used these uh, dubious techniques. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm not really familiar with the problem, but I guess that um, scientists don't put in their article, we just run tests until we get a significant result, but they just... Um, That's true. Right. Yeah, they don't say it. And then there is an epistemic problem, and I would say that that is um, a violation of epistemic integrity in that case. Um, I, see. I see. So, for example, if they if they said, you know, we sort of did the selective sampling, we, we stopped running subjects when we got 
statistically significant result, or we started with this statistical test and didn't get a significance, so we switched to this other one and we got significance. As as long as it's revealed, it's not epistemically problematic. Is that is that the general idea? Um, yeah, and and the reason why I um, accept that idea is because I want. Um, the audience to decide whether or not they regard a certain piece of information as reliable knowledge and whether they trust they trust uh, this knowledge or this researcher mm-hmm. and well that's basically one of the benefits of my definition i think okay um i just want to make sure we're we're starting to get um run out of a bit of time. So I do want to, we, st- we started mentioning Franz de Waal and his animal research um, and because of, of your, your initial interest in animal ethics. Could you say a bit about, you know, his, the case there of uh, uh, the unacceptable influences of his ideological interests in terms of, of his own, uh, his own research. And you, I, I I don't know if you went into ideological interests all that deeply there, so you know feel free to elaborate on that a bit more. But could you could you say a bit about this this final case because it is you know it is sort of the the capstone of the book at the very end. Well, the I think first of all I think the problem that I saw with Franz Duvall's work is not unique to his work. I think this is something that happens in ethology in general. So. Uh, the reason why I focused on Franz Duval is because he is very clear about his ideology, or more clear than most other biologists. And so that was very interesting for me to look at his ideology and how it influenced his work. Um, now, what is his ideology? So we, or to, well, to summarize his ideology, he puts uh, humans on top. So he says humans have the highest moral status. Uh, then there are apes who are closer to us than other animals and so they have the second moral status and then you have all other animals which have a lower moral status and on the basis of this um, theory this ideological theory um, it makes a couple of claims about um, how animals should be treated in experiments and how humans should be treated in experiments and and so on Um, now I thought that his um, that this ideology influenced his work by, um, well, this ideology, he would probably want other peoples to accept this ideology as well, in order, so that other peoples will behave in accordance with this ideology, so that he has less um, problems with how other people are acting. And so I thought he would probably want other people to accept this ideology, and they would do that if they believe that humans are more complex, have more have a more complex emotional life than apes, and that apes have more complex emotional life than other animals. In order to make people believe that um, humans have a more complex emotional life, he makes certain claims, and he acts as if these claims are supported by decent um, research. And if you look closer into this work, then you see that sometimes that is not the case. So we make certain claims. Um, we accept as if these are supported by evidence, but actually they are not that good support. And so that's, that's basically um, an epistemic problem because his ideology affects his research in um, an epistemically unacceptable way. So if he... Um 
if he was well you said he's he's forthright about his um ideology in terms of yes. moral standing right he's, he's clear about you know we we have the top full standing and then apes and then everything else and i guess the so the epis, the epistemic so from your perspective the the there's no epistemic problem with him being clear cuz he's being public right yes. about about his interests right um yeah. uh the the problem is more it seems to be just a more straightforward one of the theories that he supports uh don't have the empirical evidence that he claims they do is that is that the yeah well or is it more yeah yeah, I have different examples. So, for instance, he says that, um, or he insinuates that ants don't have the building blocks of morality. Uh, and that's a claim that is not. So he, he refers to his own research. But if you look at the article that he uses to support this claim, or that he, he puts at the end of this phrase, then you see that this research does not concern ants at all, and it doesn't refer to any other study of ants. And so you see that he's he makes a conclusion and by putting a source after this um, after this claim, he gives the reader the impression that he has thought about this in a scientifically sound way. Uh, but you see that this is just a claim that he makes without any consideration if you look closer into the research. Mm-hmm. Um, now, another example, and maybe a, a more convincing one, is that um, he presents himself as, an, as someone who thinks that anthropomorphism mm-hmm. is uh, important in biology. Um, and so this is the the idea that human uh, qualities are also present in animals and that animal behavior should be uh, interpreted in ways which are uh, consistent with how we um, interpret human behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, he says that we should, he doesn't say we should just accept that, but he says we should take this possibility uh, serious. So, if animals and humans act in the same way, then we should at least consider that animals have the same underlying mental processes. So that's the way he presents himself. But then if you look closer at his research, then you see that sometimes he doesn't um, he doesn't take such hypotheses seriously, but he just neglects them. And so he violates a standard that he himself says mm-hmm. uh, is respected. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, this is an epistemic problem. Okay, I see. Gee, uh, let's see. I, I, there, there was a, one general question that very quickly. Do you think that you know epistemic, you know, unacceptable, you know, influences of of non-epistemic interests uh, are have have gotten worse in in recent decades? I mean, you you start the book. I didn't mention this before, but you start. You know, uh, I think you mentioned something about, you know, changes in, in funding structures. And it's, it's certainly true. I mean, there's much more in, in pharmaceuticals, for example, very clearly. There's much more, uh, you know, privately funded research compared to government or publicly funded research. Um, do you think that the problem of, uh, you know, or, or problematic or unacceptable instances or cases of interests influencing science or failures of epistemic integrity do you, do you think these are getting worse and if so is it 
is is there any relation between that and the changes in the funding structure of science? Yeah, that's a very difficult question, I think, because there are so many things to consider. But, um, well, I think the fact that there, that financial interests become more and more important could be an indication that the problems are getting worse. But I think that the problems in the past were, I think there are, were also some important problems in the past which are um, less today. For instance, if you think of... Um, intelligence studies in which um, black people are compared to white people, I think that um, there used to be some racist interests which influenced such research and, and maybe that's less today. So I think there are also some positive evolutions and it's, it's very difficult to say whether it's today worse than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, there are different... Today financial interests are more there in science. Uh, so that's... Uh, that's yeah that's a danger although it can also have a positive influence so yeah it's a very difficult question but perhaps i shouldn't answer it then (laughs) (laughs) well maybe you can answer this one i mean you've um what's what is what are you working on now what's your what's on your research plate at this point um, so currently I'm looking into this Francois case closer because in the book I um I say that he, he says that he, or he insinuates or gives the reader the impression that certain standards are respected and then he doesn't respect those standards. That's a problem. But um, currently I want to argue that what he is doing is problematic uh, from an ethical point of view, regardless of the standards that he claims to, um, that he claims to respect. So... I want to look closer into this case and in the future I want to look at uh, biology in general. Do similar problems occur in other uh, research processes and so on and then uh, use these questions to think about uh, the question of how should we treat animals. Good. Okay. Well, um, we are uh, out of time. That's been a pretty quick hour. Um, So... um, I want to thank you for for taking the time to talk with New Books and Philosophy about your about your book, and I wish you the best of luck with with the uh, research that you're doing right now. Thank you very much. Okay, bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Yanda Winter, independent scholar who teaches ethics to children and adolescents. Uh, we've been talking about his new book, Interests and Epistemic Integrity in Science a new framework to assess interest influences in scientific research processes. This book is just out from Lexington Books. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.